I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, December 10th on CBC Radio. Today, in a world rife with challenges, who holds power can play a big part in how we meet them. First up, we'll break down what shifts on the global stage can mean for taming war and economic upheaval. After that, save it, drink it, or sell it. Our Sunday documentary will take you to Scotland to follow a Canadian man's dilemma over what to do with a prized bottle of whiskey. In hour two, from child soldier to peace activist, musician Emmanuel Jal will share what he's learned about overcoming hate in the face of conflict. And later on, COP28, a strikeout for Canadian baseball fans, and Riz. Three stories that got us all talking this past week, and we've got three clever Canadians here to share their takes on it all. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. international conflicts, economic pain here at home, and the effects of climate change on our lives, the world feels very uncertain right now. And while global cooperation is needed to meet these challenges, the past couple of years have shown fractures in the world community and shifts in who holds power and influence. Stephen G. Brooks is a professor of government at New Hampshire's Dartmouth College. For years, he has studied shifts in global power and what they mean for the world. Stephen, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Um, I, I'm starting somewhere maybe a little bit unconventional, which is feels. Um, the world feels very unstable uh, right now in a way that it hasn't in a long time. As someone who spends time thinking about solutions to global problems, how bad is the instability right now? Well, I mean, on the perception front, uh, it certainly does feel unstable. And let me just answer that question from the standpoint of people here in uh, Canada and the United States. It's where I live now. But I actually lived in Canada for uh, 10 years from when I was seven until 17. So I have a good sense of uh, what people in Canada are likely thinking as well. I think the most direct answer to your question is that the world, yes, it does feel more unstable. And the reason is just, I think, that there's so much military conflict uh, on the agenda right now. It's just more in our face in a way that it's been for for decades. But I think there are two other things that we need to factor in to kind of fully understand why people 
in the U.S. and Canada feel um, unstable right now. Uh, one consideration is just where are those military conflicts happening? And the point of the matter is, since the Cold War ended, there's been a lot of conflict. It's just that it was in the developing world. It wasn't among developed states or more advanced states. And those conflicts that existed among developing countries, rightly or wrongly, were just not very salient to most people in the U.S. and Canada. So, for example, if you were someone living in the Congo, the world felt unstable for decades. Hmm. Uh, but now it feels unstable here. And that's because we now have a war in Europe, which people thought there's just not going to be a war in Europe again. Moreover, we have Israel, which is a very developed country, in not just a minor conflict, but a very intense conflict. And so the point of the matter is that people in the U.S. and Canada to them, conflict feels less distant than before because of where it's happening. And then the final thing I want to mention is just the fact that the nature of the war in Ukraine itself is very, very significant in terms of, I think, leading the world to feel very different. And that's because uh, since 1991, last three decades, there have been two big things that have been essentially absent from global politics. One is wars of conquest that are designed to change borders. And the second thing was uh, revisionism by Russia and China. Those things just weren't happening for decades. But now the invasion of Ukraine essentially put both of those things you know, back on the agenda. Regarding the wars of conquest designed to change borders, the point is, of course, throughout history, they used to happen all the time. But a lot of people thought they were essentially relegated uh, to the past. Before Ukraine, the last war of conquest to change borders in a major way was Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. That's a long time ago. And so if you'd asked me like two years ago, you know, do you, do I think a strong norm now exists against changing borders by force? Then I would say, yeah, a strong norm does exist like that. But if you ask me today in 2023, you know, I'd say, yeah, the norm still exists, but it's really, really being strongly challenged by Russia. And we obviously just don't know at this point whether this Russian challenge will be somewhat successful, largely successful, not successful. So until that kind of resolves, then we're going to feel like unstable because we don't know whether the world is going to go back to having this norm and having it be stronger, the same as before or weaker than before. And then the other other point finally, just like regarding revisionism by great powers, the point is, it was, again, it was just off the international agenda for like three decades. You know, China and Russia did not like the international system, but for three decades, they felt like they were just too weak and the U.S. was too powerful for them to do anything to change it. Well, now they feel like they're powerful enough to try and change the system. But in my view, kind of remains an open question whether that's actually true. Exactly where I want to go with you next, because in the post-war period, uh, you know, the United States has been looked to as, as a as a beacon, at least in the Western world, as a leader that claims this position of leader of the free world. There are experts, politicians, um, and half of Americans, according to a Pew Research poll, who believe that U.S. influence in the world is diminishing. And you just hinted that you're not fully on board with that kind of assessment. Why not? Well, I think there the really important thing is that we need to understand that power can be understood in multiple ways. And there are two key ways we can think of power. They're both reasonable. They're both legitimate. They're both important. One way is to think of power in terms of influence. And the other way is to think of power in terms of capabilities. Regarding influence, the question there is, you know, can the U.S. get other people to change their behavior? Can the U.S. 
get other states, other actors to do things they would not otherwise do. And there's obviously, if you look around the world, there's like lots of ways where it doesn't seem like the U.S. has a lot of influence. I mean, the U.S., you know, didn't win in Iraq. The U.S. didn't win in Afghanistan. The U.S. is having trouble right now um, in the Middle East. And so people are looking at it and saying, look, it doesn't seem like you have much influence. And I get that. I mean, that's completely true. But the point is, we also can and should think about power in a different way, the second way, which is in terms of the power resources that states have. And that's how I'm looking at it, because within international relations, essentially what we're trying to explain is how much influence states have. You know, that's our kind of dependent variable. But we use a variety of different independent variables, a variety of different variables to explain how the world works. And one of them is the distribution of power resources. And there the question is, among the big states, you know, how is power distributed? How many economic capabilities does the U.S. have vis-a-vis China? How many military capabilities does the U.S. have? How many technological capabilities have? And so when my co-author and I in our foreign affairs article say, co-author Wolforth, say that the U.S. has a lot of power, that's how we're thinking about power. We're mm-hmm. saying it has a lot more power resources, a lot more economic, military, and technological resources than any other state more than China and way, way, way more than any other state. That's how we're thinking of it. And the other thing I'd say is that people aren't wrong that power is changing in that second dimension as well, because the U.S. does have fewer capabilities than it did in the early 1990s and early 2000s. And the trick was when the Soviet Union died, you know, the U.S. became this unipolar power overnight. And its gap between it and all our states was the biggest gap in world history the biggest gap in world history. And the point is that gap is closing, but it's going to take a very long time to kind of close in any meaningful way. So let's also talk about perception because perception matters. So if I agree with your argument, just not that I don't, but just for the sake of of taking this down further down the road, that the U.S. is is still very strong and has that um, execution um, ability, should it want to, there's still perception. And you have pointed out to that if you look at the war in Ukraine, um, kind of as evidence of this idea of seeing a weaker United States. So walk me through that. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they would say there was general agreement, in fact, that the world was unipolar um, after the Soviet Union died in 1991. So unipolar is just a world where there's one state that's way more powerful than any of the others. And people agreed that was the case. And now for a lot of people, they're arguing, no, it's not like that anymore. The system is now what they call multipolar, which would be a world in which there are many great powers and they're all kind of roughly grouped together. And a lot of them look at Ukraine as an example of that. And what they basically say is, look, you know, Russia is now powerful enough that it feels like it can change the status quo. Back in the early 90s and 2000s, it didn't think it was powerful enough. And it didn't act on its revisionist impulses. And I kind of turn that around. And basically for me, I look at Ukraine as saying, no, the system's still basically pretty close to being unipolar. It's not multipolar because the point of the matter is if the world was truly multipolar, then Russia would be doing a lot better and China would be helping them. But China's not helping Russia and it's not helping Russia in significant part because the United States has threatened to punish China if it helps China. And China has responded to that threat because, in fact, the U.S. has as much power that it has. But the other point I would note about Ukraine is that perception really matters and that basically the way I look at it is 
Putin thought the world was multipolar. He acted on that perception. And now he's finding, no, nope, the world is not multipolar. He doesn't have very much power on his own. China doesn't have as much power as the United States. And China is actually not even helping Russia. And so you still have a tremendous concentration of power in the hands of the United States and its allies. And the point is, if those countries act together, as they are in Ukraine, then there's really not much chance for Russia to be very successful. Hmm. If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with Professor Stephen G. Brooks about the growing conflicts on the world stage and um, global shifts in power. Um, we must talk about, of course, the war between Israel and Hamas and how the United States fits in there, Stephen. So Israel's strongest allies, the U.S., has been for many, many decades, uh, gives it billions of dollars in aid. Um, and you said, uh, you know, is, uh, the United States' influence matters. But if we look at the conflict in the Middle East right now, just, you know, a couple of days ago, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken put more pressure on Israel, at least in words, to try and avoid civilian casualties and displacement, saying that a gap, was the word he used, remains between Israel's intent to protect civilians in Gaza and what's been happening on the ground. Um, it doesn't appear uh, that Israel is heeding United States warnings. So what does that say to you about how much influence the U.S. really has over one of its closest allies? Yeah, sure. So there I think, you know, it's it's what you're doing there is very helpful in that we're, you're asking, like, well, how much influence does the U.S. have? And that's one question. And then there's a separate question, which we were just talking about, which is, you know, how many power resources does the United States have? And the point of the matter is, is that the only reason that the U.S. has any significant leverage over Israel is because the U.S. has way more power resources. Israel needs its help more than anyone else. During this war, when Israel needs assistance, the number one country that it needs help from is the United States. So that's because the world is still pretty close to being unipolar. Israel doesn't really have another place to turn to for the kinds of munitions and other things that it wants. But your point is, and I agree with it, that there are real limits to how much influence the U.S. has. So, yes, the world is unipolar in terms of the distribution of capabilities, but that's not allowing the U.S. to kind of translate into creating a world exactly like it wants, just like we saw in Afghanistan, just like we saw in Iraq. There are real limits to our influence. One thing, though, I, I'd throw back is, you know, it looks like there are a lot of limits to our influence, but it's tricky actually to figure out uh, how much influence we have because we can't actually know what Blinken and Jake Sullivan and other people are saying to the Israelis in private. We can't actually know what specifically they are being asked to do. We can see the public statements, and on the base of the public statements, it looks like the Israelis are not doing what the U.S. is asking. But on the base of the private statements, it, it could be different. The other thing to note is just that our brains are very kind of used to thinking of power in this kind of active way in which the U.S. is out there doing things to try and make the world different. And I understand why our brains are primed to think that way. But we also have to remember that power can also be used to block things. Power can also be used to get other people to not do things. And there, I think, U.S. power in the Middle East is actually being pretty effective right now and that we don't want Iran to be involved. We don't want Hezbollah to be involved. We've told them we don't want them to be involved. And so far, we've blocked them from being involved. So in that way, the U.S. actually is having influence in the Middle East. Hmm. 
Okay, let's just stay with this because much of the world, the European Union, the United Nations, much of the world, among others, have been trying to pressure the U.S. to be um, more assertive with Israel. You know, on Friday we saw the U.S. vetoing that U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in, in the world. Um, 13 of the 15 members voted in favor of the U.K. abstain. But what does that signal about the strength of the world community um, as sort of a collective yeah, no, that's a fair point. And again, it kind of takes us back to, you know, this discussion of the distribution of power and, and why it matters. And the point I would make would be, you know, if the world was really multipolar, you know, if it really was the case that, say, for example, the U.S. was equally powerful with China and with, say, the European Union, if it was an actor, if all those states were equally powerful, then the U.S. wouldn't be in as strong a position to be kind of on its own saying, no, this is what we're going to do, or no, this is what we're going to do. The U.S. has, again, a lot of blocking power because it has so many resources. And the point of matter there is that we we're talking about the U.N., like it's largely going to be a situation in which the U.N. can have a role when the United States and the other major powers in the U.N. agree together that they wanted to have a role. It can't force those countries to kind of get together. It's when they're ready to get together that they can enable the UN to act. And they're not at the present ready to act together. Let me ask you a pretty basic question, which is, um, you know, there's long been this argument from certain quarters that the US keeps sticking its nose in, you know, everyone else's business and that it just should just pull back and folks more. And we hear that from some politicians uh, and elected officials in the United States as well, who want the U.S. for lack of maybe a less technical term to be more sort of isolationist. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I actually, uh, with my co-author, William Wilforth, we wrote a whole book in 2016 called America Broad, which was about this very question. It was basically examining a counterfactual world that what the world would look like if the U.S. did become isolationist. And the bottom line answer we had in the book was the world would look really bad, like a lot uglier than it does now. And so it's kind of hard to get our heads around this because we look at the world that looks pretty ugly. But our point is it would be even uglier if the U.S. pulled back. And I'll just note, you know, four ways in which the world would be, in our view, less um be uglier. Uh, the first would be there's just going to be less cooperation in the world. Cooperation among states is really difficult. You know, states have different interests. It's hard to get them together. And if you have one state that's more powerful than the others, and if it's allied with many of the other most powerful states, as is the case today, it's just easier to get cooperation. It's more likely. And so if you take away the U.S., if it's no longer acting in the world as a leader, then it's going to be less likely to get cooperation in all sorts of things, including things like changing the environment. A second thing that we found in the book that would happen is that the global economy be more unstable for a variety of reasons. So there'd be more crises, unbelievably. Um, third thing we found is that the chances of wars, including wars among great powers, would be a lot higher. So think, for example, of Japan and China. Like right now, basically, the U.S. is in the middle between them. And it's telling Japan, like, back off, don't do anything to make China upset. It's telling China, look, if you go after Japan, you know, we're going to do things to punish you. And so they're kept apart. Now, if the U.S. just left, it's possible that Japan and China could get along peacefully. But I think it's a lot less likely. 
Then the final thing is arguably the most important thing about how the world would be uglier if the U.S. left, and that's nuclear weapons. Right now we have nine nuclear weapon states. 50s and 60s, if you ask people how many nuclear weapons there would be, no one would have said nine. They would have said like dozens of nuclear weapon states. And in my view, the U.S. pulled back and became isolationist, we would have 30, 40, 50 nuclear powers. And eventually, unfortunately, because nuclear weapons can have accidents or people who are involved in wars can have misperceptions, the likelihood of a nuclear war would be a lot higher. So if you're thinking about, you know, yeah, the U.S. makes mistakes and I didn't like Iraq either. There's lots of things the U.S. does which are annoying, but there are lots of things the U.S. are doing to make things that are used to be prevalent in international relations not be prevalent. And by the U.S., you know, kind of keeping these negative outcomes in check, it keeps the system more stable. But we just can't see that. We can't see that because they're non-events. You know, so, mm. for example, you're never going to see a headline which says for the 75th year in a row, the number of nuclear powers has not gone above 10. Like, but that's incredibly important. But we just can't see it because it's non-event. Mm. So we don't give kind of the U.S. credit for producing that outcome. You mentioned uh, you have a good sense of Canada having lived here for for a number of years and still paying a lot of attention to our country. Um, Of course, the U.S. is our closest ally um, economically, our trade, culturally. There's many uh, close binds. Um, And we have seen in the past year, you know, allegations of foreign election interference, tensions with India. We've seen the U.S., um, come to our, I don't know if it's defense, some would argue late in the game or when it only uh, was in its own interest to do so. But you say, look, Canada's kind of in a tricky situation at this point in our history. How so? Well, it's a tricky situation from the standpoint of it's it's not a big enough power that on the diplomatic stage that it can do a lot by itself. You know, it's going to need assistance to kind of move the international agenda forward in a way that it wants. And then the question is, who does it turn to for assistance? And the point of the matter is, the number one country that Canada would want to assist it is the most powerful country in the world in terms of capabilities, which is the United States. And therefore, it gives a lot of power to the United States to be saying, I'll I'll help Canada here on this, I won't on that. And the problem for Canada is, if the US says in a given instance, look, I won't help you here for whatever reason. Then because the system's unipolar, there isn't another state for China or for Canada to go to to get assistance from instead. They can't go to China instead. They can't go to Europe instead. So it's kind of like the U.S. is the only ballgame in town in terms of getting diplomatic assistance. And the point of the matter is when the U.S. provides this assistance, then that's great. But when the U.S. doesn't provide that assistance, there's not a lot of backup plans that Canada can have. But that's just another way in which the distribution of power that we see in the world still matters. We need to know where it is that states can turn to for assistance. And right now, if you're a Western state, it's the U.S. that you need to turn to and you don't have a lot of other places to go. Stephen, thank you very much for your analysis and assessments this morning. I really appreciate it. Sure. It was a real pleasure to be on the program. Stephen G. Brooks is a professor of government at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. So last Sunday, we played our latest round of our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. And I have to say that I'm still 
weeping, I don't know, hurting from that epic loss to 13-year-old Moss. Oof. Um, not that I mind lis- uh, losing to anyone, uh, even a 13-year-old, I don't mind that. It's just that he was so good, so smart. Um, judging by our inbox, many of you think you can be as good as Moss and want to play with us. Uh, so in order to earn a shot to play along in January, we asked you to come up with a made-up word that describes the following. The person who shows up at the gym in early January and instantly realizes it's not for them. Let me just say, we've already had tons of strong responses. Janine Belland in Mono, Ontario proposed the word resolution. Actually, a number of you picked up on the resolution thread. Michael Lethaby in London, Ontario suggested irresolutionary. Stephen Kilberg went with resolutionary. Resolutionary, emphasis on the no. Then we have, um, ap- these are hard to read, athletic. Like apathetic and athletic. That one comes from John Little. Pamela Kennedy is a fitness instructor in Charlottetown. So surely she has seen her fair share of this phenomenon, which she dubs calisthenophobia. Calisthenophobia. Meanwhile, Vernon Keller in British Columbia calls it an exer exit. Stratford, Ontario's Pamela Matten do, says doing so makes you a nixerciser. This one is more about how it feels to go to the gym. I think this is uh, Mark, from Mark Lessick, who suggests repulsion, like doing reps, repulsion. John Young in Lethbridge, Alberta, says someone who shows up at the gym in January and immediately quits should be called a gym naysayer. And Mike Hickey takes this a step further. He calls them gym posters. like that one, gym posters. I like them all. Um, there were many, many strong contenders. We're going to pick our favorite entry soon, and it will earn one clever wordsmith, a coveted Sunday magazine coffee mug or notebook, and of course, an invitation to join our group workout for your brain by playing along on air in January for our January edition of That's Puzzling. If you missed our last round, you can uh, listen to it by going to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopada, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. Before we all turn our calendars to 2024, we have a holiday season to get through. And now that we're well into December, you may be thinking about family, friends, and your shopping list, what presents you'll get for loved ones in your life. It is often much more uh, than the thing you give. It's about the meaning it offers. For journalism professor Adrian Ma, one special gift he received has endured in his life and in his heart for seven years. Even though during that time, Adrian has grappled with whether or not to truly open said gift. Here's Adrian with our Sunday documentary. This is called Adventures in Whiskeyland. Hello, old friend. I see you're doing well. My name is Adrian Ma. Me? I'm 39. I can't complain. I live in Toronto. And right now, I'm in my bedroom closet, talking to a bottle of scotch whiskey. Yes, it has been a while. What year is it? Well, it's 2023. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't normally keep whiskey amongst my socks and underwear, but this bottle is special. My Uncle George gave it to me. The last time I was in Hong Kong on a family trip, 2016, I visited him at his apartment. I hear you like whiskey, he says to me. I love whiskey, I reply. He disappears into his bedroom for a moment. 
When he returns, he hands me a rectangular dark wooden case. I gently open it. The case is lined with a plush red fabric, and inside sits a dusty green bottle. The label is worn, but I can make out the Glenlivet Special Jubilee Reserve, aged 25 years. Even if you're not a whiskey fan, you're likely familiar with the brand, the Glenlivet. Because if you're not the original, you're living in the shadows of one. The Glenlivet. The Glenlivet. The Glenlivet. It's one of the oldest and most popular distillers of single malt scotch whiskey in the world. This particular bottle was from a limited edition batch, distilled in 1952. Let's just think about that for a second. The number one song in 1952 was Blue Tango by Leroy Anderson. That was the year millions tuned in to watch Richard Nixon's Checkers speech on TV. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency. The movie Singing in the Rain was released. What a glorious feeling, we're happy again. And on February 6th, King George VI died, and his daughter Elizabeth II ascends to the throne. My beloved father broadcast a message to his people. Today, I am doing this to you, who are now my people. So that's the year this whiskey went into an oak barrel. Then, 25 years later, after a quarter century on the throne, Queen Elizabeth II celebrates her silver jubilee. I pledged my life to the service of our people in my salad days when I was green in judgment. I do not regret nor attract one word of it. That's the year this bottle was released and why it's dubbed the Jubilee Reserve. Basically, this bottle of whiskey had lived an entire life already. And all of this happened before I was born. I cradle the bottle in my hands. This looks really valuable, Uncle George. Are you sure you want to give this to me? I'll never forget his reply. I don't have a reason to open this. You should have it. After I got home from Hong Kong and unpacked, my curiosity got the better of me. I went online to see how much this bottle could be worth. My jaw dropped when I saw that bottles of the Glenlivet Jubilee Reserve were worth upwards of $3,000. Three grand! Now, I'm a whiskey guy and I have a decent collection, but this was easily 10 times more than I'd ever spent on a bottle of hooch. It's by an almost absurd measure, the oldest, rarest, and most valuable whiskey in my collection, which is why it sits apart from the other bottles in the dark of my closet alongside my boxer shorts. Because when it comes to what to do with a $3,000 bottle of booze, the idea of drinking it? Drinking $3,000? I've just not been able to actually do it. Now, if you were in my position and you had this bottle of very rare, very precious booze, would you choose to sell it, keep it, or drink it? Drink it, absolutely. I mean, that is the point of having a whiskey is I think you need to enjoy it. It's meant to be consumed. That's my friend Matt. And this is my buddy Jeff. My grandfather and my dad inherited a number of bottles. And anytime we've had a major life event, whether it be a, a wedding, a bris uh, for our kids, one of those bottles has always come out. And I certainly think you should be keeping it. In the end, there is only one person who insists I sell the bottle. I can't believe you're even asking yourself this question. My producer, AC Rowe. 
Do you want to know how much each shot is worth? I mean, kind of, but maybe not really. Okay, what is it? $156.25. Damn. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. That's this a is lot, a serious dude. question. Mm. I feel like the Scrooge of Whiskeyland. <laughs> Keep it, sell it, or drink it. There's only one place in this world I can find the answer. Let's go to Whiskeyland. Edinburgh, Scotland's capital city. On a normal trip, I would happily tour Edinburgh Castle, take in the Prince's Street Gardens, or check out its world-famous Fringe Festival. But I'm not here for any of that. I'm here for whiskey. Okay, so when you're in Scotland, we don't say cheers or chin-chin or salute or prost. We greet you in Gaelic. Um, we wish you good health. And the Gaelic words for that are slangeva. So I'm going to give it a try. Slangeva? Absolutely. You have nailed it. Well done. Thank you, my man. Pleasure. <laughs> Scotch, simply put, is whiskey made in Scotland. Well, duh. But it's important to understand. Much like how sparkling white wine can only legally be called champagne if it was produced in the Champagne region of France, the Scottish have strict provisions on what constitutes Scotch whiskey. It has to be made from only water, yeast, and cereal grains. It must be distilled, aged, and bottled within Scotland. And it has to be matured for a minimum of three years in oak wood casks. And no artificial flavoring or sweetening is permitted. All that sweetness comes from malted barley. And single malt just means the whiskey is from a single distillery. Scotland takes its whiskey seriously, and for good reason. It's a massive driver of the country's economy. Global exports of Scotch whiskey exceeded six billion pounds in 2022. The earliest documented record of distilling whiskey in Scotland goes all the way back to 1494. And the word whiskey itself derives from the Gaelic term uskebia, which loosely translates to water of life. But the most important thing to learn about whiskey, how to drink it. Enter Kirsty McCarrow. So I founded and run the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy. We meet at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, a private members club, where she walked me through her method of tasting whiskey. She told me a lot. There's five key regions, obviously space. Peaty character, highlands, lowlands. Trialing different yeasts, using different barley. Original ABV of the whiskey. Volatile compound. Region suffered a lot when the railway was built. Sensory analysis perspective. So I'm going to try and get you the crucial pointers. First things first, the drinking glass matters. The gold standard for sipping whiskey is the Glencairn. It's a small glass with a wide bowl and a tapered mouth. So it concentrates the aromas um, as they come out. Next, pour out a dram, about one fluid ounce, give or take. Look at the colour and, uh, you know, swirl it around the glass. It's always a good idea to perhaps have poured your samples a little bit in advance so that they are room temperature. If your whiskey is slightly cold, you could always warm it up in your hands a bit. Next, Get your nose in there and give it a good sniff. Well, now you've got your sort of initial introduction to, to the aromas. It's, it's time to taste it. And so when you taste it, you're obviously looking for uh, the, the flavours, the mouthfeel. Um, is it very creamy? Uh, is it quite peppery, spicy? Shall we go for it? Yeah, All right, here we go. <coughs> Excuse me. I, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to throw words out. <laughs> but... A kind of a citrusy, almost. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yep, citrus, zesty. Yeah. Uh, you definitely 
get these sort of coconut vanilla notes coming through in the end. There it is. Yeah, once you said coconut and a bit of vanilla, I, I got it. Wow. We do this with a couple of other jams. Afterwards, I thank Kirsty and promise to apply what she's shown me. But as we gather our things to leave, she drops one more piece of whiskey wisdom. There is no right or wrong. Everyone has their ways of doing it, and that's great. You know, everyone will develop their own way that they really enjoy drinking whiskey. Put another way, when it comes to Scotch whiskey. We can look to the immortal words of the rock legend's journey. Any way you want it. <laughs> But I've come to this country for something specific, to see for myself where my bottle of Glenlivet was made, the Glenlivet Distillery. The distillery is situated within the Livet Valley, a place that is breathtakingly beautiful, impossibly verdant, and seemingly untouched by time. I take a tour of the grounds with blending manager and cask expert, Kevin Baumforth. Glenlivet started, you know, back in 1824. Raw materials are the same, it's, it's still made with Water, malted barley, and yeast. There's been some technological advances. That's you know that's helped with improving that consistency in terms of the you know, temperatures, the the timings, and all of that. But the actual DNA has stayed the same over over all these years. As we continue our walk, Kevin tells me he's been digging through Glenlivet's archives to see what he could find about my bottle. We found a few nuggets for you, and I've got a few things I can share with you. I'm so excited to hear that. Okay, okay. What did what, what, you find? So Robert Arthur, who was the general manager at the time, uh, so he actually became the general manager in 1952. In most likelihood, that's when the whiskey was distilled. So he started the same year, 1952. He retired in 1978, and that whiskey was released in 1977. You know, I know myself because I've been blending now for nearly 24 years and it, you go full circle, you know. So he, he would have been there distilling, laying down the stock and 25 years later he's, he's bottling that whiskey. So it's like, you know, that would have been a huge proud moment for him. His tenureship encompassed that entire time that whiskey was maturing. And he retired just a year after that. So, I mean, that would have been the pinnacle of his, his career, that release. That, that bottle would have been the absolute pinnacle. And we know from the obituaries that he was described as a, a Speyside whiskey legend. So what you have there, that bottle you've got, is the pinnacle of a man's career that was a, you know, a Speyside legend. This isn't just a bottle of scotch. It represents a whiskey legend's entire career. And by having this bottle, I'm a small part of his legacy. Kevin walks me back to the distillery lobby. I have one more question for him. Really, the only question I have left. What kind of moment, in your opinion, justifies the opening of such a bottle, and who should I drink this with? I think for you to open up, I think it must be a momentous occasion. It's much better shared, it's much better experienced, uh, and to taste And it, that whiskey will taste just as it was intended, just as Robert Arthur created that whiskey, the flavor that he intended, it will still taste the same as when he put it together. And that's, that's the great thing about whiskey. Once you, once you take it out of a cask, you put it into the bottle, the flavor's locked in there. It doesn't change. It's not like a bottle of wine that will continue to mature, stays the same as it was intended. It's a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do. We, we, we're, we're almost like time lords a little bit because we're, we're putting whiskeys down for 20, 30, 40 years in the future, you know? Yeah. Where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs> That's it. 
Uh, okay, guys, great to see you. Do you want to drink some whiskey? Yeah. Yeah. These are some whiskeys that uh, Liz and I actually visited these distilleries in Scotland. It's about six weeks since I got back from Scotland. I'm with a group of my closest childhood friends and their partners at a cottage in Muskoka, Ontario. See, all of us turned 40 this year, and we decided to mark the milestone with a collective birthday party. It's a rare chance for us to all get together for the weekend and without the kids. I've brought a few whiskeys to share from some of the distilleries I visited. The Glasgow Distillery, Glen Farkless, Ben Romack. All right, so Liz is going to pour some drams out for everybody. We pour the drams out, nose them, sip them, compare and contrast, just like Kirsty McCarroll taught me. So obviously there's any way you can drink whiskey is, is, is the way you should do it. I'm looking around the room at my friends, thinking about the countless times we were together like this. Sharing Cokes as kids, chugging cheap beer as teens, and sipping Johnny Walker as grown men. In my life, the drinks have gotten better, but the company has stayed the same. I don't need to wait for some monumentally special occasion because this is what's special. Actually, guys, I, uh, I do have one more to share. Ooh. No. <laughs> really? Oh, no. oh really? my God. I've been tearing up. Who is this? <laughs> I take out my bottle of Glenlivet Jubilee Reserve. So as you guys know, this little bottle here sent me on an amazing adventure. I got to see where it was made, met people who have dedicated their entire lives to making whiskey. And what every single distiller, blender, bartender, and scotch expert told me was that there is no right or wrong way to drink whiskey, but the best way to drink it is with people you love. So... I think back to the words of my uh, Uncle George when he gave me this bottle. I don't have a reason to open this. Uh, you should have it. Well, having friends in my life like you guys, that's uh, reason enough. So that's truly something to celebrate. So let's do like the Scottish do and uh, have a toast. Uh, Solangeva. Solangeva. <laughs> Here comes the cork. Nope. <laughs> it broke? The cork has broken in half wedged in the neck of the bottle. My friends, bless them, fly into rescue mode. Someone produces a corkscrew in the hopes that we can gently extract the remainder of this wayward cork. Okay, the corkscrew is going in. <gasps> the slightest touch has it's caused okay. the rest of the cork to tumble into the bottle. It's okay. it is, we, got so we pour out some drams. Cork particles be damned. Slangeva. Slangeva. That is actually incredible. <laughs> cork or no cork? Smooth whiskey. Wow. Beautiful. I'm honestly not a really big whiskey person, and I loved it. <laughs> I mean, thank you for that, because that is a, a privilege to have that opportunity to try something like that. Thank you. You're welcome, my brother. My verdict on the special Jubilee Reserve? Exceptionally smooth, with a fruity sweetness and a wisp of smoke. But we never finished the bottle. We strained it and found a replacement cork. One from this century. Now it's back in my bedroom closet. I'm saving enough for two more drams. One for me and one for my Uncle George. For the next time I visit him in Hong Kong. So, until we meet again, Solangeva.
What a sweet story. That documentary was produced by Adrian Ma with AC Rowe from CBC's Audio Doc Unit, along with music courtesy of DECA and Columbia. The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. Canadian artist Emmanuel Jal has become a powerful voice for peace. Through the years, much of his music has focused on his traumatic past and the demons that still haunt him. At around seven years old, Emmanuel was recruited to fight as a child soldier in the civil war in Sudan during the 1980s. The bloody conflict fought along ethno-religious differences brought him to some of the darkest corners of his mind, and he experienced firsthand how war can fuel hate. After a chance encounter, though, with an aid worker, Emmanuel was able to escape conflict, making his way here to Canada, finding a home, and finding his voice in the music world. Back in 2009, he shared his life story in his very powerful memoir, it's called War Child, and now Emmanuel's sharing some hard-won insights about life that he's gained along his journey. His latest book is called My Life is Art. Emmanuel Jal, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I mentioned you've become a powerful voice for peace in our world. There's a lot of conflict um, right now in Gaza, Ukraine, Yemen, Sudan, other places as well. How are you feeling about the state of the world right now? The the most beautiful thing about this stable, the state of the world now is we have uh, a conscious awakening, but conflicts will always arise. When people don't have solutions and ideas for it, we get pushed in the wall. And so now sometimes we see the wall in our own eyes. The way the other person sees it is different. Hmm. But what allows us to see things is the sets of beliefs we have. So through our beliefs, we are able to walk together. But when we find two opposite beliefs about something, that's when the the perspective collides. One of the things that actually I was in England and I was in a bus and this, this Jewish kid just having a normal conversation with his friend, he said, look, I'm Jewish and my parents goes to Israel, but I don't like what our government do to the Palestinians. My family don't like it, but every government has got their own ways of doing things. If I'm in position of power, I'll change things. I can bring peace to my country. So now that's a kid perspective, you know? Yeah. And then you have like, sometimes we look at it and it's like, this kid having a, you're in a bus. And this kid is saying his perspective. And I say, wow, this is amazing. He's this kid. So we have a new generation now that I have hope that if their conscience is guided, the future could look amazing. Mm-hmm. So even though we can look like the world is divided, but the children's conversations are different. Your childhood and adulthood have had different milestones than most people. We attach a lot of meaning to age. How do you think about age? 
I mean, when you're a kid, you're vulnerable. And I can go to my perspective. When I was a child, my desire was to kill as many Muslims and Arabs as possible. And why? It's because of the experience I saw the Muslims were doing to us. My mom was beaten when I was a kid. Our food was snatched. And the killing that was happening, um, some of them coming screaming in Allahu Akbar and committing atrocities. And as a child, that's how my perspective was shaped. You know, every act that they were doing to us, they were building a monster. Luckily, when I came to Kenya, when I was smuggled to Kenya by a British aid worker, uh, this is where my perspective was changed because I came to find Muslims and Christians living happily together. I couldn't understand it. It took me a while. I was taken to a boarding school and there was a Muslim kid called Mustafa. His parents visit him. Nobody ever visited me. And this kid will share his biscuits and everything he has with me. But he had no idea I had plans to kill him <laughs> as a revenge. In my heart, I would say, okay, look, I'm going to take this kid to the forest. And one day I'll just finish him. And nobody will know. That's my evil plan. The kid is nice to me. I eat his stuff, but my evil inside me want to kill him later. So sometimes I don't understand how things evolve. But for me to be able to see clearly was when, my, when I liberated my heart from bitterness and hate. And how, how did you, you do know? that? How did you come overcome that anger, that bitterness, as you say you had? Because I wanted to have a peace of mind. I have nightmares, then I have flashbacks in the day. And then came to realize African proverb say, when you're bitter, it's like you swallow poison and you're wishing the next person to die. And I said, okay, I don't want to be the one to die. The people who destroyed my home are far away. And the other thing is I discovered when we're trainers kids, why would you do terrible things to your enemy? Why would you raid a village? Why would they amputate? Why do they do all these horrible things? Why would they drop? Why do they want to terrify people? Why would they want to rape? So one general explained the reason they do that is if you want to control the enemy for the generation to come, then you have to create horrific things that they can keep on taking and it will be transferred through anger, through bitterness, through characters, through behaviors, and through their minds being blocked, through tempers. And then those people will hardly mentally evolve with time and, and we can continue to rule mm. over them. So and then as a mayor, I had to process that. Would I want those who destroyed my home to continue to rule me and also control it, rule my heart and my kids, kids, kids? So I had to liberate my heart and let the bitterness go. And also I had to connect with my village in the past. They say... You never become bitter against your enemy. Anyone who hates you, you can't hate them back. But you can stand out for what you think is right. But the moment you hate them, they control you. The moment you're bitter against them, they control you. And that's when they never used to allow a warrior to go to fight if he's bitter. He has to go through a ceremony. And once they discover he's bitter and angry, he can't go to fight. And so now you have to revisit those knowledge. So 
after I liberated my heart, then I was able to see it was the dividends or the profits I gained by letting go was amazing. I did an album with a with a with a with Abdel Ghadir Salim, a Muslim man, and that launched me to the world in in a way I've never seen. And every concert I did, I remember when I used to concert, many Muslim people used to become my friends. My documentary war child was funded by Muslim people. It's unbelievable. So now going to America, going to Canada and experience the world to realize, look, you only know what you know when you're in your environment. But when your mind is expanding, you go and visit to realize that Muslim living peacefully in Canada and UK and everybody has got equal rights. That's what I want to bring in my country, you know? Yeah. And as you say, in order to free your heart, your book opens with this very provocative question about your mind. Who owns your mind is the question you put out there. And for you, you write that for a long time, what owned your mind more than anything else was trauma, the the trauma of your past. What did that look like for you? How did trauma behave within you? Well, trauma is, is very smart on how it can hide itself. You know, that those who knows they have trauma and will seek help, that those who don't know they actually have trauma. And that those who knows they have and they don't know how to seek, and that those who know and don't need help. And so I could talk about what trauma did to me. I would be in a class and the teacher is teaching and the pen is stuck in my hand. And I would wish the teacher asked me a question. What is in your head? My mind was not able to concentrate. My mind's life was blocked. I repeated one class four times. My ability to focus was snatched away from me. My ability to concentrate was second away from me. So if you're not able to focus and concentrate, what are you going to do? Like right now, I'm still teaching myself how to increase my focus and how to increase my concentration. What is a focus is to adjust your mind to a specific thing and giving it attention. But what is concentration? Your ability to hold and giving that thing that full attention for a duration of time. Because when you have full focus and full concentration, you learn better and you change your life better. To that point, you write that your past was ugly, but your present is disturbing. To quote you, you say, I constantly fight elements of my history. You're using the present tense here. So this is, this is an ongoing present battle that you face each and every day. Yeah. Yeah. So in the past, I didn't know how to, how to, how to do it. You see your past experiences, your past defeats brings depression because you haven't resolved how the past should be. You haven't let go of things. Then they, you get a flashbacks, you get a thought about it, you get depressed. You feel guilty about something in the past or humiliated about something in the past and you didn't resolve it. It comes as a loop. It prevents you from moving forward. And then your future is not clear. So your ability to, to reimagine yourself out of challenges and to see your future and create it once it's blocked and anxieties and worries about the future you get excessive anxieties. And then if you don't have mental strength to handle the challenges in the process, you have excessive stress. And then when your future, your present and the past collide negatively at one moment, you lose hope. And when you lose hope, what happens? 
not a dead human mm. alive. I think, Emmanuel Jell, that maybe sometimes when people look at you and your accomplishments, your fame even, you know, you starred in a Hollywood film alongside Reese Witherspoon, inspired by the stories of Sudanese boys who were just like you. You performed at Nelson Mandela's birthday concert. You played chess with Richard Branson. I could, I could go on. And I think that sometimes people think that success and your ability to gain that success, to stand on a stage or on a screen, means you've overcome your past. How, how do you see it? I want well, well, every person has to define what success means to them. But what I can say is, if you have your peace of mind and you have joy in your heart, there's nothing more beautiful than that. Because when you're on the bottom of the pyramid and you have peace of mind and you have joy, you're living. When you're on top of the pyramid, you don't have your peace of mind and you don't have your joy. It doesn't matter how much is in your pocket. You're in hell. The internal hell is worse than the actual hell that you experience in your flesh. And so I have my joy 24 hours a day. There's, there's no way I can let that go. And for you to attain your joy is only through your purpose. You know, when you know your purpose, when you walk in your purpose with clear defined goals and a burning desire to act, success will follow you like your shadow. For me right now, what is more important is the internal engineering, how we have to constantly develop ourselves from within. Now, blaming people like in the past is no longer part of my daily life. Because when, when I find something challenging, I work to imagine myself out of it. And whatever I imagine, I just believe it and figure out how to get it done. I came to Canada with nothing. No family member, no sister, no nothing. All I had was a story and a life that I'm going, I imagined to be in Canada and just went out and figured out, believe it first and figure out how to get it done. But, but maybe someone is hearing you say, and that seems like so much easier said than done. So many people are struggling and stuck to take those first steps that you were able to take. I would say, for example, what is it that you want to bring into your life? What is it the life you want to create? Nothing man or any human being as, or a child or woman has ever created that didn't first exist in the mind. What is the life you want to create? Write it down. Speak it. Imagine through it. Put yourself into it. And then now, believe it in your heart. And then figure out how you're going to get it. Put 30 years. How am I going to be in 30 years? 15 years. And go at your own pace. But the most important thing is self-development. What you're going to put outside has to be in you first. When outside is bigger than you, it will crush you inside. So you have to build yourself inside. The inside has to get stronger, 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 stronger. And then now you put that image out. You're, you're an artist, but your message in this book is that your life is your real work of art. Explain that to me. What it is, is what I find exciting is we are the one who can create the work of art and we leave it behind. We don't get to see it. When you're dead, that's when the people will see what work of art did you draw. So now we can design. It's not what's important is not being famous. 
is where you are at that moment. Who are you? How are you living your life? And each one of us can lead from any position. You could be a toilet cleaner or you could be a chef in the restaurant. Whatever you are, how you live your life, if it gives you joy, you're walking in your purpose. Is that? It's simple as that. We can only bring what we imagine out to the world. Yeah. In my introduction to you, I, I mentioned, of course, your childhood of growing up during the Sudanese civil war in the 1980s. And, um, you know, probably one of the most overlooked conflicts in the world right now is what's going on in Sudan now. And I'm thinking of, you know, a boy like you were caught in that conflict or a kid in a number of other conflicts in the world right now. What would your message be to kids who are living through war right now? What I would say is, don't lose hope, help is coming. The universe has got its way of looking after its own people. Sometime during the Jewish Holocaust, it, it looked like it would have never end. You know, there's a man at one time wanted to uh, terminate all the Jewish people on the earth and did everything possible. But you see, something happened. They survived. So I would say, like, there's a way out. Help is coming. The universe has got a way of restoring balance and looking after its own. Emmanuel Jal, it's always good to hear um, your thoughts and hear about your journey. And I thank you for this in our conversation today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Emmanuel Jal's new book is called My Life is Art. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. So every week here on the Sunday Magazine, we do deep dives on the top stories shaping our world. But there are also so many other stories ruminating, stories that are big and small, that we chat about here in the office and I chat about in my home. Um, so we've brought together some smart Canadians from across our country to chew over some of those hot topics that have us have had us all talking this past week. So around our virtual table is author, journalist, and climate optimist Chris Turner, who's in Calgary, journalist and culture writer Stacey Lee Kong, who is in Toronto, and Clifton Cremo, a stand-up comedian from the Eskasoni First Nation, is in Cape Breton. Good Sunday morning to all of you. Morning. Good morning. Can Good I morning. just say, um, you're looking riz, riz? Did I use that correctly? <laughs> Stacey's already laughing. Okay, can I just say that Riz is the word of the year, the word of 2023, according to Oxford University Press. My daughter, she's not up and listening, but if she was, she'd be cringing right now. Uh, For those of you who haven't heard this term, there is debate of whether this is a short form of charisma. The influencer who coined this says, no, it is not. The OED says it is. In any case, think of it as charisma, attractiveness. Anyway, you guys all look amazing and Riz-full. Stacey, you're the culture <laughs> writing. You laughed when I said Riz. Is this where our culture's at, though? Because uh, Marion Webster chose authentic, and so sort of an old-school world versus this kind of new, I don't know, made-up word Riz. Is this where we're at culturally? I mean, I I hope not because that's a little depressing because I don't like either of those choices. So mm. I think Riz, I also thought it was short for charisma. So A, I just don't like how it sounds. Like as a word, it annoys me. I don't have a logical reason for that. I'm just like, ew, hate. But aside from that, um, I just assumed it was a short form of charisma and was like, okay, but we we have we have a word that means charisma, conveniently enough. We charisma. Just, 
use it. What if? Um, so that, but even authentic, like the concept of authenticity, I agree is increasingly common, um, especially among marketers. Like it's a, it's a big business word. It feels like, but it also like, are we just, it's a throwback to 2017. No. We've been talking about authenticity for a while. So um, last year's word of the year, Oxford chose goblin mode. And I don't even know if that's accurate, but I think that's way funnier. Like mm. I would prefer that the word of the year feels that random than, I don't know, Riz and authentic. Okay, Here, here's the, Not into it. Here's the contest. All three of you, I'm going to get you, I'll give you time. When we're sort of wrapping <laughs> things up here, you're going to have to come up with your own word of 2023. Clifton, have you ever heard or used this word Riz in a conversation? Like, I don't even know if I used it correctly when I said you all look Riz, because you can't all look charisma. So I don't know what I'm doing, but like, have you ever used this word? Um, I've never used it unironically. I've definitely used it as a joke. Uh, I'm, I'm too old. I'm, I'm, I'm 31 and that's too old. Oh, <laughs> that's that, that's definitely too old to be using that word. I was a uh, I was in the car with with my partner and I I I, I used the word Riz and she was like, "Don't, I, I, I might have to leave you." You're <laughs> <laughs> the stakes are high. Fair enough. I get threatened with uh, you have to stop saying that because it's cringy. Like at the beginning of 2023, I used slay and my kids were like, oh, God, gross. Um, because I was saying it, not because slay was gross. And anyway, like it's like when they go back to music, like this is a really cool song. I'm like, yeah, it was from the 1980s, kids. Anyway, Chris, you've got young people in your home. Um, yeah. Did they know Riz? Like, have you guys had the conversation about Riz? We've not discussed Riz, but, but you have identified the chief and only way that I keep up with anything currently slang. Um, I, I think the last one that I, that I had any sort of serious engagement with was Yeet. Uh, that's a few years back now. Yeet. Uh, my older son very into Yeet as a thing, and I would only basically use it to, 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 get, the, to get the cringe out of them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The kids, huh? I guess, I mean, I, yeah. language evolves and all those things. And I guess we just, as Clifton said, maybe we're just, um, I don't know, too old. Uh, let us talk about something a little more serious, uh, well, arguably a lot more serious, uh, that was taking up our attention this past week. Uh, UN Climate Change Conference COP28 wrapping up this Tuesday, I believe it is, in Dubai. So, Chris, you're the you're the climate guy. You're the climate optimist. You write about the climate Um I don't want to be a downer, but we hear a lot of talk, talk, talk about these summits and from these summits. Um, are they accomplishing anything? I know they're accomplishing some things, but are they accomplishing anything that will really make a difference to our climate crisis? I mean, I think the, the my, uh, uh, main approach to the to climate talks is to, to recognize what they're doing is useful and necessary and helps set ambitions and helps coordinate action and that sort of thing. But it's really not driving our, our global response. Nothing at that scale. I mean, you can't coordinate 190-some energy and climate policy. We can barely do it among you know 10 provinces and two territories in this country, uh, three territories. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, my, my, my thought has always been it gets, it gets undue am, am, amounts of attention. There's a lot of, there's a tendency as the climate talks are going on because they get a lot of attention. Oh, we're not doing enough. Oh, the, you know, it's a, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the shirts in a country that's a major oil, oil producer and they're kind of, kind of driving the conversation. That's not going to determine what 2024 looks like in terms of climate action. You know, those things are being determined at national levels and below. They're being increasingly determined by the fact that all the the, the tools for, you know, reducing emissions are getting cheaper and better and more desirable and the rest of it. And so I I tend to think, you know, yes, it's great if, if we see a really good, productive 
round of climate talks, but that's not going to actually make or break anything uh, at this point. We're in a much different different place now than say 20 years ago, where where maybe you could say, oh, the fail you know the failure of this round of climate talks to set tougher targets means that we're not going to see the kind of action we need. Hmm. So, Stacey, as a culture writer, when you look at COP um, and, and the coverage of this climate conference, what's caught your eye? So I actually ha- I have notes because I have questions for Chris oh, about fair. what's Take caught over my, my job. That's great. <laughs> like, yeah, can I just ask some questions? Can I just butt in? But okay, so the thing that always catches my eye is how we talk about things. And so language is always really interesting. And I was looking at the report. Sorry, got to gotta look at the notes. Um, so as I was looking at coverage of the UN report that was assessing how much the world has done in meeting commitments from the Paris Agreement and how everyone is really far off, um, which is depressing. But the report was saying that we need the phase out of unabated fossil fuels. And abatement is one of those words where I'm like, I think I know what that means, but I went and I Googled it and it brought me to this NPR, obviously, like that's what I'm going to do. So it brought me to this NPR article about almost how um, oil companies are using, I don't know if weasel words is too strong a phrase, but they're using this language that often, I think, masks what actually needs to be done. So like lower, lower carbon or unabated fossil fuels. And even though what we need is probably more drastic action, they're doing something that's a little bit like more moderate or they're talking about more moderate goals. And I would like to know, is that because we have to be realistic about what we can actually expect from company like big oil companies or oil producing countries or is this just marketing like what is what's happening chris unabated go for it unabated yeah i mean so so very very briefly so the the reason why uh the oil and gas industry likes to talk about abatement is because it allows them to kick the can a little bit further down the road and sort of say okay you know what we are starting to develop technology that will allow us to capture the emissions associated with production of, of oil and gas uh, and therefore, you know, in some indeterminate future, we'll have this solved. So let's not let's not get into talking about phasing out. Let's not get into talking about you know uh, actual emissions caps and things like that because those make us nervous and and, and ask of us to do something you know much. It will cost us some money, and it will absolutely cost money. The, my take on this, and and it is a little bit uh, of a contrarian take. I honestly don't think the oil and gas industry uh, as a whole is arguing it from a point of particular strength anymore. I think these are mm. increasingly sort of retreat. You know. 10, 15 years ago, they didn't want to talk about it at all. Now they have to talk about it. Let's talk about, you know, uh, uh, our internal emissions, our, our, our sort of production emissions. Oh, now let's talk. We know we eventually have to get to net zero. We've had to agree to that, even though that doesn't look great for us. But what if we promise to figure out this this uh, uh, carbon capture thing? So, that it, I mean, yes, it would be better, I guess, if you had a, you know, progressive oil and gas industry, but I, I, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not waiting that on would that. be so fascinating to see okay. what that would look like. I hear giggles. And that, Clifton, you're a comedian. 2023 has been a very tough year on many fronts. The climate crisis, we saw the really, really tangible effects in so many places around the world, in, including here at home. Is there any funny in your biz? Um, is there any funny to be found in this climate doom and gloom? Um, yeah, there's definitely funny to be found. I don't know if I'm the one to find it, for sure. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but there is funny to be found. Um, yeah, but when we're when we're talking about like the the COP, I think uh, generally um, are 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 these are these summits conferences uh, 
needed as frequently as they are. I feel like it's like having it, having an annual climate conference where, you know, a bunch of millionaire, billionaire people fly on their private jets to uh, this year, the UAE, which is probably as far from everyone as possible. Um, uh, I, I think it's like doing it yearly feels like when you're trying to lose weight and you're stepping on the scale every day. Hmm. Uh, you're you're not really seeing measurable results and it, it feels kind of more fruitless in that okay we regard. got an naysayer on call that's okay uh you mentioned um uh billionaire people flying around on jets that is a perfect segue to talk about my favorite subject and i'm just putting out my bias there my favorite person every year aside from my loved ones, uh, is Taylor Swift, who made Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Uh, she, you know, was up against Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, climate activist Greta Thunberg, and so on. So, Clifton, like, to me, this was a no-brainer, uh, not only because I love and adore her, but because I really believe in 2023, her influence has just been stratospheric. You know, no no one has had a bigger influence on music, entertainment, the NFL, um, the economic spinoff, wherever she went. So are you Team Taylor here or Team Pia? I don't know whose team. We're on the same Team Taylor and me. Um, I'm not. I'm Ooh, not on okay. Team Taylor. I'm not on Team Taylor. Uh, you, you mentioned that her, her influence has gone stratospheric and... Uh, that's that's true you know you see studies where she announces a tour date in a in a in a country and that country's economy sees a boost like a visible mm-hmm. boost or just by dating an nfl player the nfl's viewership has gone up like 20 percent uh and you know travis kelsey's jersey sales have gone up like 700 percent or something um see, you, you know all these things even though I, you're not into taylor this is I, the important I, I, part <laughs> yes the, the the important part of being a hater is being studied up uh, <laughs> you can't take someone seriously yes, if they're a hater and they don't okay stacy wish you the right choice in your view oh no oh absolutely not <laughs> so sorry okay. he has never invited me back on the it's show it's fine um <laughs> So I'm also not a big fan of Taylor. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, mm, yeah. So I have a problem with so many parts of this decision, and I'm going to tell you all of them because I'm having so many feelings. So, like, problem number one, I do think Taylor had a stratospheric year. Absolutely. Did did Taylor have a bigger year than Beyonce? Did, mm, mm. If I answer that, then I'll get I'll get. Then we're at. fighting. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. But I would argue um, yes. Okay, I would argue I'm not sure. From a pure revenue-generating perspective, okay, yes, I think Taylor wins on that because I, I think the most recent thing, again, you got to be studied up, Cliff, and that's the perfect way of putting that. Um, I think she's like, her tour is going to cross $2 billion. Like, it's massive, absolutely. Um, but the, the other part of it for me, and this is maybe a little bit less funny, is that it feels a little bit hypocritical on Time's part to recognize uh, not just Zelensky last year, but the spirit of the Ukrainian people, and then go from sort of being able to see the importance of liberation in that context and not recognize the fight for liberation in other contexts. And I'm specifically thinking about, like to me as a journalist, I'm thinking a lot about the young journalists in Gaza who are quite literally risking their lives to tell the world what is happening to their people and their country or their their space, their land. Um, and to I think it's hypocritical and also kind of cowardly to not recognize that. That's fair. 
Uh, I will just say it's Time Magazine's person here. We can all celebrate and think about and tell our friends and family of the people we think. Chris, I'm letting you off the hook uh, on the person of the year and Taylor Swift because I know you want to talk about a different um, multi-millionaire, which is um, Shohei Otani. So, listen, Taylor Swift's going to play in the Rogers Center, i.e. Sky Dome, uh, next year. We thought that's maybe where Shohei Otani was going to play with the Blue Jays. Um, listen, if you don't know who Shohei Otani is, he is not Wayne Gretzky. He's not Michael Jordan. He's not Babe Ruth. He's something unto himself. He's a pitcher and a batter um, extraordinaire. Anyway, the Jays thought they were going to, or fans of the Jays thought they were going to sign him. Yesterday he signed with the LA Dodgers for $700 million over 10 years. So Chris, Friday was a nutso day in our country. Um, If you follow Shohei Otani, do you want to just kind of give us your assessment of what happened on Friday? Yeah, so it was actually, it felt like it was about two or three days, but Friday was the one where it really went uh, sort of... Bonkers? Sort of, sort of, yeah, yeah, sort of, sort of supernova. Uh, yeah, so Shohei Otani is, you know, certainly in the conversation for the greatest baseball player ever. He's doing things, you know, both pitches and plays the field and, and bats. No one's done that at the level he's doing it in 100 years. Um, obviously, in addition to being extraordinarily important to whatever team, gets to, to, to play him every day, uh, it would have been, you know, just a massive shift in the, the, the sort of amount of attention and particularly international attention the Toronto Blue Jays or whoever he signed with is going to get now. It's going to be L.A. Uh, what was exciting about this, I think, in part was that, that the Toronto Blue Jays are usually not in these kinds of conversations. It's New York Yankees, it's the LA Dodgers, maybe Boston. It's not Toronto. And so the fact that they kind of, kind of hung on to the very last and there was a point on Friday where the you know uh, uh, online social media rumor mills were churning away saying he's on a plane on his way to Toronto and people were losing their minds and, and uh, one of the more senior kind of kind of uh, MLB reporters uh, was on Twitter sort of saying you know he's you know I, I'm, I'm confirming this there's a, a blogger in LA who says this it's happening it's as good, good as done and so obviously I mean this would have been the greatest coup in the history of, of certainly the Toronto Blue Jays, maybe of, of, of any, you know, uh, 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 baseball teams, you know, sort of, sort of sneaking in and, and taking the superstar away from the usual home, the, you know, LA or, or New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things sort of reverted back to, to the usual, which is, you know, we just missed an mm-hmm. extraordinary opportunity. It was fun to see though. It was mm-hmm. like the, the amount of excitement was, was, was really quite a lot of fun. Can I just say how annoying I found it um, about everyone who knows nothing telling me what's going to happen? <laughs> like, I understand yeah. people tracking this plane and people who cover it. People, I don't know, made mistakes or whatever, bad choices or didn't have good sourcing. But, like, the number of friends I had who were telling me that, like, they knew what was happening. I'm like, but yeah. you don't know. It was annoying. Anyway, Otani won't play for us. Thank God we have uh, the rest of the great players, Vladdy and, and Bo and so on. We will have to wait for spring training to see how that all folds out. Um, I have to let you guys go, but I promised that I would make you give me a word of the year. So, Clifton, you got one for 2023? I think uh, I think Barbenheimer is my word of the year. <laughs> That's someone else's word. It's, well, I I didn't coin it, but yeah. I think I think it I think it encapsulates everything that authentic and Riz were going for. Okay. You no, know, it's it's that duality. Okay. You got the Barbie and you got the Oppenheimer. Great, Chris. You got one. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna fall back on you know my day job talking about energy transition and say electrification. Uh, I'm old enough to touch, and I'm never gonna. Wait, gonna... your word is electrification. <laughs> yes. Okay, I only, I'm, I'm, I only gave you about 15 minutes to come up with one, so I'll take the I'm, I'm, I'm very much out of touch these days. 
I'm fine with Riz, to yeah. be honest. Okay, okay, Riz. I like the double Z. Uh, Stacy, culture person, you write, you you think about these things maybe more mindfully than the rest of us do. I don't know if it's mindful. I have to. So the radio is not going to see this. My word, I think, is yikes. Yikes. Because that's how I feel, and it's been I. Okay, I'm going to describe my phone background. Yeah, her phone screen's uh, like when the screen lock is on, it says yikes. Yeah. It's like this beautiful typographic. I said it in like January or February thinking, oh, yeah, you know, that's the vibe. And it's just been the vibe the whole year. Like, yikes. It's yikes. Every time okay. I see it, I'm like, no, that's accurate. Okay, it's kind of like mine because mine's been oof or oof because you can say oh, oh, that's F in many ways. One. But I feel yes. like every time like I get up in the morning and look at my phone, I know I'm not supposed to do that first thing in the morning. But then I go oof, oof. Exactly. Then, I also say oof a lot. That okay. makes me feel very seen, actually. Thank you, Pia. You're welcome. Thanks, you three. Nice to talk to you all. Have a good Sunday. Appreciate it. Have a good Sunday. You too. Thanks. Stacey Lee Kong, journalist and culture critic in Toronto. Chris Turner is an author and climate journalist in Calgary. And Clifton Cremo is a stand-up comic from Eskasoni First Nation. He's in Cape Breton. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. With the holiday season in full swing, we want to round out today's show with a festive tale. It comes from Canadian comedian and satirist Rick Mercer, and it's a story that Rick and his brothers long kept to themselves. Until Rick decided to spill the beans in his memoir, Talking to Canadians. Rick dropped by to chat last year about his book, and he cheerfully agreed to share this story that his family long kept secret with us. Here's Rick. In our house, the tradition was for the tree to go up the day before Christmas Eve. This infuriated us because many people on the street would have trees up a full week before Christmas. Now, of course, people put them up way earlier than that. I have neighbors in Toronto who have their Christmas tree up and decorated on November 12th, and they're Jewish. So it must have been just before the holiday when our nagging got us the go-ahead from Dad to go find the perfect tree. And this year, we were being trusted to do it entirely on our own. This is typical of my father. And while I know now he would have been happy with whatever tangly mess we brought back, we took the challenge very seriously. So, axe in Gilbert's hand, saw in mind, we set out for all the spots we imagined we might find a magnificent fir. We were young, but we knew the rules. Trees could only be taken from crown land and not near any road. Also, you should look for younger trees that are in clumps of other younger trees. That way, when you take one, you're essentially making room for the other young trees to grow. You were not, under any circumstances, to cut down a larger, mature tree and just take the top off. It's wasteful, environmentally unfriendly, and just plain wrong. We knew this because Dad had said it many times when every year at Christmas we would come across a large fell tree with no top. Of course, unsupervised, it was the very first thing we did. We started out with the best of intentions. We were on the Pine River Lane, a dirt road about a kilometer from the house that cut through multiple meadows. We were looking at all the small firs that ringed the fields, but none of them looked quite good enough. Eventually, we started looking at the tops of the larger, more mature trees. We could see why some jerks would go that route. The tops were perfect. We sized up a monster with an attractive tip, agreed to never tell, and started cutting. It took us forever. 
The trunk was huge, and taking turns was suddenly the worst kind of manual labor. We didn't have a buck saw, just a regular wood saw, a saw suitable for cutting down the young trees we were supposed to be hunting. The thick branches of the mighty fir prohibited us from using the axe. We tried to cut the lower limbs off to make room so we could swing at the trunk, but that was also exhausting. Halfway through the trunk, we gave up. We half killed a tree for nothing. Is it any wonder they say the brains of little boys take forever to form? In the face of defeat, we ran. It was getting dark as we headed up Middle Cove Road. Miserable. Two saps covered in same. It was Gilbert who stopped, grabbed my arm, and said, I see it. You see what I said? Right there, look. It's perfect. And he was right. It was a young tree, six or seven feet tall, standing alone. It was the classic Christmas tree. In all my years, I had never seen such a perfect one. Perfect, except for one small problem. The tree was pretty close to the road. Also, it was behind a fence. And so, the tree was in someone's yard. And not just any someone. It was in Timmy Green's yard, my best friend. The Greens had one of the largest pieces of land in Middle Cove, a house and burn, two large meadows. This tree was in front of that burn. Certainly not crown land. The Greens' yard was always immaculately mowed. Their grounds were heavily landscaped with many different types of flowering bushes and trees. They took this stuff seriously. They were both professionals, university professor types, in fact. I suspected that they lacked a sense of humor. That said, no sense of humor would allow them to see the lighter side of what Gilbert was about to suggest. It's not even really in their yard, he said. It's more by the burn. I bet they wouldn't even notice. They probably wouldn't, I agreed. Their not noticing was magical thinking at its best. This was not even a tree that was growing wild on their property. This tree had come from the nursery. This was a tree they had planted in a lawn that they mowed regularly. When spring came, there would be a ring of daffodils at its base. It's really young. The trunk is small. We can have it out of there in minutes. I had to admit, it was a pretty good-looking tree. The chances of our finding another one like it were slim to none. You stand guard, Gilbert said. And with that, we were over the fence and on our bellies, crawling towards the target. I lay in the snow and put their house under surveillance. I was to whistle or cough if I saw anyone coming. The lights were on, but nobody came out to investigate the sounds of a saw and a panting boy. Within a few minutes, it fell. Grab the end, Gilbert said, and we heaved it over the fence. Now we were on the road. We looked back where the tree once stood. It was glaring in its absence. How we thought for a second that it wouldn't be missed was truly absurd. It was like a car thief thinking that a homeowner wouldn't notice the missing Subaru because there was also a Range Rover in the driveway. This was new territory for us. We had committed a true act of vandalism. We were vandals and juvenile delinquents. Suddenly, Gilbert's eyes widened like saucers. Our footprints, he said. Sure enough. All around the base of the naked stump were footprints. Boys' footprints. We might as well have left a signed note. Together, we climbed over the fence again. All criminals return to the scene of the crime, but usually they wait for a week to ten days. 
We were back within minutes. Together in the fading light, we got down on all fours and wiped away our footprints with an intensity bordering on manic. Eventually, our tracks were covered. Back out on the road, it was an adventure to get home. We had probably half a kilometer of ground to cover. And every time a car approached, we would throw ourselves into the ditch with an increasingly dramatic flare, like soldiers diving into the trenches to avoid a hand grenade. On the walk, we covered a wide range of topics. Everything from, whose idea was this anyway? To, do you think we will go to jail? Or, will the Greens be mad? And of course, the Santa Factor. Oddly, the one option we didn't consider was just dumping the tree and running. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, but we didn't know that. We were too naive to realize the smart move was to ditch the evidence, throw the gun in the creek, and bolt. Or in this case, the tree in the ditch and skedaddle. Our arrival in our yard was greeted as a triumph. The entire family agreed we had found the perfect tree. So perfect, in fact... But Mom and Dad agreed to put it up and decorate it that very night, a full two days early. When we were asked, where did you find it? We answered simultaneously and with great confidence. Pine line, said Gilbert. By the pond, I blurted. You'd think on the walk home we would have bothered to get our stories straight. In any event, when the tree was lit and decorated, Mom declared, as she did every year, that this was the best tree yet. For the first time, she was not lying. Over the next few days, we began to relax. Nobody came around and asked questions. No SWAT team surrounded the house. We started to get comfortable with the idea that we had pulled off the perfect crime. We still avoided walking past the Green's house in case someone was watching over the stump. I avoided calling Timmy to go sliding because the hill was on the Green's property. All of the children in the neighborhood were free to toboggan on their hill. In hindsight, that was awful nice of his parents. Sometimes Mrs. Green would make hot chocolate for everyone. I tried not to think about that. Also, you could always count on Mr. Green to pull over and give you a ride if he saw you walking up the street. The guilt was killing me. The plan was to avoid the Greens altogether until perhaps the new year. So it came as a complete shock when Gilbert and I marched into the house after dinner on Christmas Eve and found John and Jane Green in our living room with our parents drinking tea. It's a wonder I didn't projectile vomit right there on the spot. I had known the Greens my entire life, but never to my knowledge had Timmy's parents been in our living room before. The thought that they would ever be in our house had never even occurred to me, and yet here they were on the couch next to the perfect Christmas tree. Look who popped by, Dad said. Hello, I said, although no real sound came out. And then the most astounding thing happened. Mrs. Green turned back to my parents and continued with the conversation they'd clearly been having before we came in. It was small talk. Gilbert and I sank to the floor looking at each other with bewilderment, while the adults continued to have a pleasant conversation about nothing in particular. Twenty minutes later, my heart rate was approaching normal when Mr. Green, on standing and getting ready to leave, suddenly turned the conversation to theft. "'Have you ever had anyone cut any trees off your land, Ken?' he asked. "'Someone took a tree by our burn this week, practically in broad daylight.' 
My mother and father reacted to this news the way someone would react if they found out an axe murderer had moved in next door. In your garden, Mom said, aghast. Can you believe it? Brazen, Dad said. Who in God's name would do that, Mom asked. I thought I was going to die. They have to know, I thought. This was an elaborate torture. The tree was literally under their noses. The entire house reeked of fur and guilt. Of course they knew it was us. It dawned on me that I had never been in this much trouble before. I was about to speak when my eyes caught those of my brother. As he reached up to scratch his neck, he ever so subtly made the universal symbol for do not say a word, his index finger crossing his windpipe like a knife. And suddenly, the greens were reaching for their coats. Well, that was nice. Thanks for the tea, said one of them. Come again, said Dad. Don't be strangers. Merry Christmas, said the Greens, directly to my brother and me, and as if they meant it, hope Santa finds you. You too, I croaked, was my voice choosing now to change. Lovely tree, said Mr. Green. Isn't it, said his wife. And then they were gone, and Mom and Dad were taking the empty cups to the kitchen. I was hyperventilating on the floor, but Gilbert threw himself on the sofa with total confidence. Cool. Collected. Told you, he said. They didn't suspect a thing. To this day, I have no idea whether they knew it was us who cut down the bloody thing. If they did, why did they remain silent? Maybe they thought it better to just let the guilt punish us. Or maybe because of their decency, they never considered in a million years that the tree from their land was the one standing in our house with an angel on top. I do know that many times over the years, I've considered confessing to them. They still live down the street in the same house. In our defense, all I can say is that in all honesty, we never took a tree on anyone else's property ever again. My parents were legitimately horrified when the truth came out in our house many decades later. They were shocked to learn they had raised history's greatest monsters and didn't know it. And they couldn't believe we had both sat there in the room with the Greens while the tree was discussed and we didn't crack. Terrible, Mom said. Although. It was a nice tree. If you are listening to this, John and Jane, my abject apologies, I'll drop off a sapling in the spring. That's Rick Mercer with a Christmas story from his memoir, Talking to Canadians. And Monday morning on The Current, you can catch Rick in conversation with Matt Galloway. They'll be talking all about Rick's latest book. It's called The Road Years. That's it for this week here on The Sunday Magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help this week from studio director Susan McReynolds and audio technician Emily Caravazio. Our senior producer this week is Pete Mitten. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. cbc.ca slash Sunday is the place to stream and share all of today's stories. Also the place to get our podcast. You can share your thoughts with us by sending an email to Sunday at cbc.ca. Join me here again in one week's time when our Sunday politics panel will reflect on another roller coaster year that has almost gone by, 2023, and they'll be looking ahead to 2024 on the political front as well. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you so very much for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.